Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I was working with somebody who'd gone through some very horrific childhood trauma. And the thing is, I asked her, you know, as we were continuing the conversation, I asked her, does some part of you feel like you deserve it? She goes, yes. Does some part of you feel guilty for it? She said, yes. I said, good, then go there. Everybody else will tell you, you didn't deserve it. You shouldn't feel guilty. Like people told me, you shouldn't feel guilty, you know, and I get it. You can't control what happens in war. Bullets fly where they fly. But the fact is that darkness exists. So instead of avoiding it, go into the pain cave, go into the darkness. If you feel that, go there. What does it mean about you? What does it mean about God? What does it mean about humanity? What does it mean about life? And then see what you find in that cave, you know, in that hell. And the next day she shared with her husband for the first time she hadn't shared. I think she'd been married like 20 years or something. Never shared it with, with him, never shared with anybody. I don't even know the details of what happened. But the fact is you have to go into hell to come out on the other side of it. So when you're in hell, go deeper into it and use that pain as a vehicle for change because it's through suffering you find transcendence. It's through suffering you find the next awakening. You have to battle the dragon to find the treasure. And the greater the dragon, the greater the treasure on the other side of it. So use it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Akshay, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me, man. It is my pleasure to have you back here. Uh, you have been up to all sorts of crazy shit that always makes me wonder when you're going to die and makes me worry that you're going to die. You know, I, you know, just for those of you who you know, don't know Akshay, he came over to our house and we watched this movie about Everest and everybody in the movie died. And I was like, Akshay, I'm never going to climb Everest. That has never been on my bucket list, but now it's officially <laughs> off the bucket list. Uh, but before you know all that, uh, I want to start asking you, what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did those end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Hmm. So I was, I was raised in India. I'm originally from India. Um, and I would say, you know, my, my mom is a little bit more religious in the sense of practicing some of the Hindu rituals, but we were never very much devout in terms of those rituals. So very spiritual. My mom is more spiritual than religious, like in the sense that, yes, she does do some of those prayers, which I'm sure you're very, very familiar with, you know, the Indian holidays and all that as well, but mm -hmm. much more spiritual than religious. If I had to ascribe myself to one label, the closest would be Buddhism for sure in that, like, I do not personally believe in a higher power God. I believe 
that we all have an inner divinity, like, you know, like in Buddha, they say, in Buddhism, they say, we have an inner Buddha that we can awaken within us. That's kind of my take on it. And the pursuits I, 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 I push myself on that I push my limits on, they are all a means to activate and awaken my inner Buddhahood in, okay. in one way of putting it. Well, so you mentioned you were raised in India, uh, like up until what age? Like what, cause you know, obviously you don't have a bunch of an accent, but like what age did you come to the United yeah. States at? Uh, I, I moved out of India at the age of eight, but I moved to Singapore for five years and then lived in Singapore and moved to the U.S. at 13. Actually, when I first moved to the U.S., I had a bit of a British accent because I went to a British school in Singapore. So I, uh, but then I was like, because I moved around a lot, like I lived in two different cities in India, Bombay, Bangalore, Singapore, Austin, Texas, when I moved here. So by the time I moved to the U.S., I was, I was, you know, 13 years old. I'd lived in four different cities in three different countries. So I'd become very adaptable. It's still to this day, one of my core strengths. And like any strength, there's a shadow to it, right? So the strength of adaptability, adaptability comes with sort of the, the shadow of impressionability, especially when you're young and you're not sure of who you are, which is what drove me into some dark paths when I first moved to the U.S., but I moved here at 13. Yeah. Well, okay. So you know, the reason I, I asked that is I'm always curious, one, sort of uh, what forms of culture shock you experienced when you first got here to the United States? What did you notice that you thought was odd or unusual? And then, you know, from an educational standpoint, what did you see as the contrast between the way that you were educated in each of these different places? Great question. You know, I, the funny thing is back then, right, there was no internet to, or not really an internet. When I moved to Singapore, we just started getting dial-up. So you didn't really have a means to figure out what you're getting into. So I remember when I moved to the U.S., everybody in Singapore was like, you moved to, I was moving to Texas, right? So mm -hmm. the, the reputation of Texas, everybody's like, dude, they're going to hate you because you're brown. And, you know, people are going to be running, riding around on horses in cowboy boots. I was super nervous. <laughs> gonna be like, yeah, you know, I thought it's going to be this, like, people are just going to hate me because I'm this little brown kid. And I had no idea what to expect. And as you know, Austin is kind of a very different vibe than the rest of Texas. Uh, yeah. So, well, Austin has a massive Indian population, too. Ex exactly. They're, they're, you know, so it was, it was, I had, I had no kind of expectations, a little nervous, of course. Every move, I was a little nervous because I had no idea what to expect. And every time you're kind of starting afresh, building, building friends and all that kind of thing. But having moved to three different places already, I, I made friends pretty quickly. I adapted pretty quickly. I, I found, you know, my, my tribe in a way. And again, not in the sense of like with any sense of certainty of who I wanted to be and what my path was. I mean, granted, many young kids don't know, it, but you know, some do. But, um, I, I, so yeah, I, I came here with zero expectations that I didn't know what to expect. And as far as the education, like, one thing in the U.S. even now to this day I notice versus India in India, as I'm sure you can relate to too, it's very rote memory learning, right? You you mm -hmm. you just have to memorize stuff. In the U.S., for all its faults in its education system, which there are many, of course, but it teaches you how to think a little bit more. Not mm -hmm. that by any means was I a star student uh, <laughs> in when my younger younger days when I did move to Austin soon after moving here, I got very very heavily into drugs and alcohol. So by no means was I a star student, but it did it did teach you a little bit more how to think as opposed to just what to think, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's funny because I, uh, it, it, this is, you know, it's something that has just become very apparent to me. It's funny that you say that because I think that that is actually lacking in our education system to a large degree, even in the United States, because, you know, you have this experience where, you know, you can get through high school, uh, you know, and get straight A's. Matt would be like, oh, you're a straight A student in high school. It's like, yeah, of course I was an Indian. My parents would have disowned me if I didn't. 
get straight A's in high school. Well, I said, Matt, <laughs> I mean, getting straight A's in high school doesn't mean you're smart. It means you're disciplined. 100%. Any moron, moron can get straight A's in high school. Um, and so the thing that I wonder about, you know, when it, when it comes to that, a couple of things, uh, you know, I definitely want to get into sort of you know, how this whole drug and alcohol thing started, but for your parents, what was the just general narrative around your household about the role and importance of education in, you know, both your life and your career? To your point, I mean, being Indian parents, it was everything, right? Like they put me in the best schools. My dad was kind of rising up now. He's, they've done very well and he's very successful. But at the time, you know, lower middle class kind of thing, we were rising up the ranks in his career and did everything they could to put me in the best schools. Education was vital. And I mean, despite my, despite being a fuck up with drugs and this, that, and thing, I, I did what I had to do to be a B plus to A minus student, right? Like I, I, to your point, it wasn't that hard to, to make that happen. Because in, in, especially Indian parents, that was like the thing that was the, the, the most prized was, was your education. Now my mom was a little more in athletics as well. So in Singapore, we did get into, uh, I was into running, especially even in Bangalore when I, when, and you know, before, when I was eight years old, um, into fitness as well. My mom was a basketball coach in the school. So education was highly prized and they did everything they could to put me in the best possible school. Like you, I went to Westlake High School in Austin, which is, what, from what I understand, still one of the best, considered one of the best schools. And, and as it happens, also one of the higher drug problems. <laughs> but, uh, but so yeah, it was, it was everything for them, you know, to make sure I get the good, good education. Uh-huh. So now, you know, you, I think, let's talk about the drugs and alcohol. I mean, how in the world did that start? Because, yeah, I mean, especially in an Indian family, that's just, you know, one of those things where it kind of is so frowned upon. It's just like, Absolutely. wait, what? Like, I mean, my parents would have lost their shit if I, oh, yeah. if they, if they found out, you know, even though I, I think I tried weed in high school for the first time and I even got my parents stoned once that didn't go well, uh, <laughs> but that's, yeah. a, you know, we'll save that story for another episode. <laughs> so, you know, getting into it, when I moved here, I moved at the age of 13 and soon after, like around 15 or 16, I think is when I first started, I, again, as I said, you know, I was like very adaptable and very impressionable. So I don't blame anybody else. Like I take responsibility for my behavior, but as a young child, I didn't know what I wanted. So like I always, my parents have asked me to this day, you know, what could they have done differently? Like I had a great parents, didn't have a traumatized child or anything like that. Like my parents were outstanding parents, couldn't have asked for a better life. Like I said, they put me in the best school, you know, they wanted the best for me, but I got into a group of friends where that was the path we were going. Like had I got into a group of friends where, you know, let's say they were mountain climbers or rock climbers, I would have gone into that early and I would have gone ham into that, you know? Like I was to this day, the same person in some ways that I was looking to push the line and the line that I was pushing was in the arena of drugs. So, for example, like me and one of my friends, we were the first two to grow, start going from alcohol and marijuana to harder stuff. That guy ended up ODing on heroin and died, you know, and that would have very easily been me because I was the one kept wanting to push the line and drugs was just the arena that I was playing in. So it was um, to your point about the parents like, you know, freaking out. I mean, I got caught smoking weed in school. And for my parents, especially Indian parents, I mean, marijuana might as well have been heroin, right? Like drugs were drugs. It was all the same umbrella. There was no distinction between the differences. And they didn't know anything about the distinction between weed and and, and any other drug, right? It was just a drug. So they flipped out, understandably. (laughs) And I mean, I back then I was lying about everything. So now they all know the truth. But I lied about what I what I was doing, how much I was how much I was doing drugs. They never really found out till many years later uh, when I, when I told them the truth, cause it didn't matter anymore, but it was, yeah. uh, it, it was just, I think that I got into a group of friends where this was my avenue to explore my edges. And uh-huh. that's what I was doing. And, and I, like I said, it could have, it could have ended very, very badly. I mean, it did a lot of dumb shit in that day, 
that should have killed me and possibly could have hurt a lot of other people. And thankfully, I don't know by what miracle it did not, you know? And so yeah. like the only reason I, I got out and didn't go down that same road that two of my friends, like one, one guy I mentioned, another friend OD'd as well. He, the two, two friends died was that I saw the movie Black Hawk Down and that movie was the trigger that changed my life forever. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, it's funny because I, you know, we'll talk about the fact that you, you chose to go to the military, which is so unusual for, for Indians. Like I think it's just so rare, yeah. but you know, the, this, you know, ability to, to push the line and, and, you know, uh, push limits of what you're capable of. It just reminds me of a conversation I had with Matt and Tim, uh, and, you know, we're talking about sort of experience, you know, exploration, experimentation. And, you know, I, I still remember to this day, you know, I was having this conversation with them and I was, you know, we're talking about limits and I was like, I have limits. They're like, yeah, Srini, we've never seen them. You know? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I wonder where does that come from? Like that sort of desire to push limits. Like, is that inherent? Is that something that you think has just evolved over time or grown over time? Because every time you come, you know, you, and tell us about your next thing, I was like, you're out of your fucking mind. I'm like, <laughs> you know, here's my friend Akshay. He's out of his mind, but I love him. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, you know, I think there's it's a bit of the nature nurture thing, right? Like to some degree, when I look back on my life, because I've thought about this a lot, my parents have thought about it, because, you know, they're worried about the things they do today. And we always wonder where it came from. Like when I look back, even when I was a kid in Bangalore and we'd play rugby and I would get cut up and I loved my scars. Like my scars were these battle scars that I had earned, you know, when I'd got cut playing rugby on dirt and rocky uh, kind of uh, uh, grounds, you know? And so there was some part of me that I think always loved that. Even in Singapore, I remember running barefoot on rocks just to see if I could, just to build that strength, just to test myself. And I just, I think I didn't, I didn't know, because I guess, and again, I don't blame circumstances at all. I take responsibility. But at the time, looking back as a, as a child, you don't, I, don't, I didn't have the level of awareness I do now. I, I didn't have an avenue to channel that in a positive way. I didn't have, I didn't know where I wanted to go with that. So I was just bouncing around, testing myself in all kinds of different ways. Like I said, from getting cut up in rugby, playing. I mean, I was, uh, I was in hundred meters, you know, I was really fast running hundred meters when I was a kid in India, running in rocks in Singapore. And so just looking to push myself and then moving to Austin, it became the drugs. So I think to a certain degree, there must have been something about me that was striving for this. I mean, even at a young age, my, I don't remember this, but my parents have told me when I was a kid, like, I would like my, you know, in, in India, you know how it is. Sometimes you, you have people who like work in your house and stuff. So we'd go to, you know, some family member's house and there'd be somebody working there. And my cousins or whatever would, instead of tying their own shoelaces, they would have somebody else do it. Like, mom, can you do it? I would always be like, even if it take me like 10, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I'll be like, I'll do it myself. That's what I've been told. I don't remember these stories, but my mom told me this. So I think some part of me, it was this nature, right? It was innate. But I think life experience over, you know, over the years has taught me that this is this like continuing to push that edge is where I find the most peace, where I find the most fulfillment. It's what it's what brings bliss and um, the amplification of life experience, the intensity of this human human experience to its highest when you're pushing that edge. And so certain degree, it was, you know, part of me. And then as I kept pushing, I realized that there is nowhere else I'd rather be than than playing on those edges because. That's where you really find out what it means to be alive. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that when we start getting into, you know, all the batshit crazy things that you do, uh, you know, for, with your time. But talk sure. about your experience in the military, particularly as an Indian American in the military. Like, I mean, I feel like I've talked to maybe two people who are Indian. I think it was Kamal Ravikant was the other. I mean, what is it like to be an Indian person in the military? Is it any different than it is for anybody else? I mean, you just are people like, what the hell are you doing here? And then, you know, what is the the perception that you get from sort of the community around you? I never experienced, you know, any sort of racism at all, not even one bit. I mean, there was jokingly like we in the military, we joke on like every stereotype of every culture. We play on that all the time. So like in boot camp, I was called a Haji in Iraq. They had there's when we found IEDs and wires, they were like, 
dude, not Avadi. Get a picture of you pretending to make an IED because I was the terrorist. You know, so mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff was was uh, <laughs> was a part of it. But it was never like serious. We we did that to yeah. everybody, right? It was just part of the 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 the, the beauty of being in the military and, and and kind of embracing the the differences to to find our our similarities through that. So it was never racist. In fact, it was actually a badge of honor in many ways. And many many people in the military and outside praised me. I remember in boot camp. In boot camp. It's very, very rare to get a compliment. Boot camp is like the initiation, right? Like you just suffer and they just treat you like shit. You're not even a human being. But I remember once in boot camp, a senior drill instructor from another platoon actually like complimented me. He was like, you know, most, and I'm not trying to talk shit about anybody else, but this was just what he said. He was like, most people don't even, most of the Americans aren't serving in their own country. This was post 9-11, right? So it was mm-hmm. almost certain I would go to war and inevitably I did. And he was like, here you are. You're not, I wasn't even a US citizen at the time. I was a green card holder. So I wow. wasn't even a fully American. And they were like, here you are, not even American fighting for the country when many Americans don't. So it was actually like praised as a badge of honor. At the same time in boot camp, they also talked a lot of shit. Like one day I was just standing around, literally not doing a damn thing wrong. And the drill instructor comes up and be like, oh, you're you're one of those rich ass Indians, right? I'm like, uh, and he's like, yeah, let me show you what you do to you. And it, it was not like genuinely racist. It was just one more excuse to fuck you up because that's what they did. Was, mm-hmm. I mean, it, they did that all the time for whatever bullshit reason they could find and that's part of the beauty that is boot camp but more most mostly it was actually like lauded as a as as a sign of honor that here i was not even american choosing to serve in the u.s military knowing that you would go to war and i was infantry so i chose to be marine corps infantry which was you know you're going on the front lines yeah well okay so talk to me about what it's like to be on the front lines in terms of you know what we see through the video versus what you experience as reality and the contrast between the two. Like, what we not see? Because I think that there's often this perception for, you know, people like me and, and a lot of other people who tend to pre, you know, on the liberal side, it's just like, why do we spend so much damn money, defend, you know, on, on defense? And I remember yeah. asking a, a high-ranking uh, military official this. I, you know, I, I got to go speak to some retired Special Forces guys. He was like, look, you got to realize, he was like, military is just following orders of politicians. Um, yeah. everything we do is for political risk or political gain. But for you, as somebody on the front lines, like, what do you think that the media doesn't portray about the reality of what you guys experience when you're there? I think we don't, we often don't tell, like in the war in Iraq, especially, yes, we shouldn't have gone. And I was, it was a history major in undergrad. So I wrote a thesis on the war, studied it, you know, and lived it, of course. Yes, we shouldn't have gone in. There were a lot of lies that went in. But on the ground, when we were there, we were genuinely trying to do good for those people. And they had been through hell most than most of us, more than most of us can fathom. And what we didn't see was all the good that was happening. We all know about the Abu Ghraibs and the the horrors that that happened in war. But like, I remember we opened a train station for the first time in four years. There was no media for that. You know, you don't see like, like I remember there was an incident. I think it was either when I was there or when I came back where somebody had shot somebody on post and the media made the big thing about it. I think it was like some government person from Italy or something that got shot. And they were like, you know, these Marines are shooting people on post. It's horrific. And I was like, dude, none, nobody has any idea what it's like to be on a post where every single vehicle, every single person that comes through could be the person that kills you and your buddies. And the nature of counterinsurgency war is so challenging in that you just never know. No, like most of us did not want to kill an innocent human being, right? Nobody wants to do that. But you're in a place where imagine just walking around a town, like walking around Austin, and you don't know if that person next to you is just a normal person living their life. Or the person who wants to kill you. Like, for example, with, w- with women, you know, like w- women would wear the, the burkas, right? And we wouldn't, out of obviously respect, we wouldn't physically search them. But men, sometimes we would physically pat down. 
to make sure there's no sort of vest or anything. So what the insurgents started doing was they would, they, the male's insurgents would wear the, would wear, wear the burqa and have a suicide vest. And you just never know. So when you see a woman, we would look at their feet to see, do they have manly looking feet? So here oh. you are walking in around a town with 99.99% of people here, just normal people trying to live their lives, take care of their families, just doing and what the rest of the world wants, what we all want. But you never know who that one person is that could kill you and your buddies. And the nature of that is, it's demanding to say the least. I mean, it's arduous. It's, it's highly stressful. I mean, we had many instances where I could have, Pull the, you know, pull the trigger and it would have been legally justified to just, it would have been justified to do so legally as well as in the nature of that s- s- scenario. But I didn't. And, and thankfully I didn't. We didn't kill innocent, you know, an innocent, an innocent person. But let's say I made the wrong call and that person killed me and my buddies. That's a, mm-hmm. that's something I would have to live with. Right. So I don't think they, that it doesn't, you don't, you don't, you not only do you not see the good side of what we were doing out there, but nobody can really fathom the, the challenges of what counterinsurgency warfare really is for those on the ground and how demanding it is. So we only see, oh, here's somebody that fucked up. And look, I'm not justifying the atrocities of war. They're horrific and no doubt that shit should not happen. But you don't really understand when a person shoots somebody on post what that person was going through. And I don't think we do a good enough job of like really stepping into the shoes. Like I had a, I had a, I had a couple of junior Marines who killed himself when they came back from the war, man. And like, shit breaks my heart. I was on the verge of suicide myself, you know, and there's a lot of things that happen out there that stay with you. And I don't think we talk about when in in terms of the experience of war, like how demanding it really is. We kind of break it down into the simplest nature. Oh, we just did this bad shit like Abu Ghraib. But there was a lot Mm -hmm. of good shit and there's a lot of complexities to counterinsurgency warfare that you can't really fathom and understand. Yeah. Well, talk to me about this whole idea of coming back, you know, being on the verge of suicide because I imagine the level of PTSD that comes from seeing just the kinds of atrocities that most of us will never witness up front must be significant. You know, when I, like, I didn't, I, to be very frank, I didn't go into the, uh, the, the, like, the hardcore, you know, like, I wasn't in the uh, crazy shit all the time. We had rounds go off all the time, like, uh, we, you know, but I wasn't in the thick of firefights regularly, like, because when I went to war, our biggest threat was the IEDs. We did have a vehicle in our company got hit an IED. My vehicle actually drove over an I, uh, active IED and for some God knows what reason it didn't explode. And we had pop shots go off around us all the time. Like they shot a rocket ac- across our base. So little things like that were happening, but we weren't in the thick of like firefights on a regular basis. Cause by the time we w- well, by the time I went in in, t- in 2007, the, uh, uh, like the insurgents knew that if they fuck with us, we're like Marines are not only insane, but our firepower is vastly superior. So that's why IEDs were our biggest threat. Point is to say, yeah, we saw some fucked up shit like it was a guy who got shot right across our base, but I came back almost feeling guilty that, like, not almost, for sure feeling guilty that I hadn't suffered enough. I hadn't experienced war in the way that I wanted to. Like, and again, a lot of this was very naive at the time. Like, when you see a war movie, when you see Saving Private Ryan, when you see Black Hawk Down, which was the movie that got me in, I didn't go through a lot of that shit. And to this day, there's like a part of me that feels like, I didn't suffer enough to earn my place on this planet. So a big part of struggling was with that too, just the guilt of not having done enough, the guilt of, I mean, I lost a friend in the war and I felt guilty that why do I get to come back alive? You know, why do, I didn't get shot. I didn't lose any limbs. I didn't, I wasn't certainly no hero or anything like that. I didn't do shit out there to earn my place, to, to, to justify my existence. So it was a lot of that guilt. And yes, you do struggle with the, the, the things of like, loud noises. I was definitely a lot more hypervigilant because you're spending, again, seven months in a counterinsurgency warfare, right? Like loud noises could mean death. 
crowds could mean depth. So I was very hypervigilant of crowds, uh, very hypervigilant of loud noises, very jumpy, all those kind of things. But I think the biggest thing was just guilt, guilt that I came back alive, guilt that I didn't suffer enough. And so when I came back, I wanted to go back to war. I kept volunteering to go back every chance I could. I was like, send me to Afghanistan, send me to Iraq. And then when I, when wars were dying down, because 2008, the wars were dying down, I went to go get my master's in journalism because I wanted to go back to war as a combat journalist. So I, in my mind, I needed to go back into hell to justify my place on this planet. So how did you get out of the darker parts of this? Because as far as I'm concerned, you're pretty much going through hell to justify your place on the planet every time you tell me about one of your adventures. So I like that all sounds pretty hellish to me, but I mean, talk to me about how you got through the darker parts and then we'll start talking about um, your most recent batshit yeah. crazy idea, which was to go across <laughs> Antarctica. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. 
We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Absolutely. So yeah, you know, like I do, I do, I do, continue to venture into hell, but with a very different level of consciousness than I did back then. So as far as how I got in, got over it, 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 it's some, you know, some things in life, like the losing people you love, losing, losing a buddy in war, losing a brother in war, and, and a lot of the horrors that human beings experience, the darkest of human, the human condition, I don't believe you truly get over. You just learn to work with it and learn to use it. So, I mean, when I came back from the war and I didn't get my chance to go back to war, uh, you know, you know, went to journalism school, didn't get a chance. Like, well, then I, that path changed because I met um, the woman who's now my ex-wife, but met my wife at the time. And um, and so that path changed in terms of going to war. But I was now seeking hell in other contexts. So I went to do a one-month ski crossing of Greenland, dragging a 190-pound sled for 350 miles in temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees, like brutal conditions. The following year after my crossing, a British explorer was killed on there in the storms the kind of storms we experience. So you go back into a different kind of hell. But I wanted to play on those edges because I found a strange kind of peace by being in war. There is a very strange kind of peace you find in war. And I, I, all of this hit an, eventually hit a breaking point where, you know, I was at a point, dude, drinking like a bottle of vodka a day. I would drink until I threw up, pick up the bottle right after throwing up, pick up the bottle and drink again. Then I would pass out. As soon as I woke up, I would drive straight to the liquor store to pick up another bottle because I couldn't face the chaos of my consciousness. And this would go on for days on end. And one morning after like five days of this, I woke up and was, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I remember standing there looking at a knife about to pick up the knife and slip my own wrist. And just the fact that that thought even entered my head was kind of, I mean, it was jarring to say the least. And so that was kind of the rock bottom where I started to climb out of the abyss. But what, how I got out of it was recognizing that, look, there's some of this shit, the goal here is not to make it go away, not to recognize that it's not, you know, see, when I came back, like I was labeled with PTSD, I was diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But the fact of the matter is I had symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but post-traumatic stress is not indicative of post-traumatic stress disorder. Those are two different things. Like I was jumpy with loud noises. I struggled with survivor's guilt. I didn't like crowds. Those were normal human responses to war. My brain spent seven months in an environment where loud noises could equal death. Inevitably, I was more hypervigilant. It's not a disorder, it's post-traumatic stress. But if you accept it for what it is, and choose to use it instead of instead of identifying with it as a disorder, you can turn that post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth. So for example, with my survivor's guilt, for a long time, what I did was I put a picture of my friend that I lost in the war up on my wall, and it said, this should have been you, earn this life. And to honor my friend, you know, to, to honor this life that I've been gifted, as I said, my vehicle drove over an active bomb. I don't know why the hell my, my that IED didn't explode. Why do, why do I get to live, right? So I didn't have the answers to those questions but I think what, what, what one, what helped was turning that darkness into fuel, like using my guilt to honor his, his, his life, to honor this life that I've been gifted, to honor the, the privilege of still being alive and not wasted being a fuck up drinking alcohol, you know, drinking bottles of vodka a day was one part of it. And the second part of it was finally, like I spent set, like what really helped was when I, I did a seven day darkness retreat where I went into seven days of complete darkness, silence and isolation. Like can't see your hand in front of you, darkness. And a lot of shit came up in there when I was in the darkness about the guilt and constantly feeling guilty about this life that I get to live, you know? Dude, I, like I said, I was born to great parents. I remember, I, you know, right before going to the darkness, I did this 167-mile run across Liberia, talking about more of the crazy shit that I've done. It was about a marathon a day for a week. We were raising funds to build a school out there. And the first day of the run, these two kids started running beside me. And one kid 
blessing in Emmanuel were the names. One kid wanted to go to med school. The other wanted to go to vocational training school. And they were living in a tiny village in Liberia. One of the kids lost his, uh, his mother in the war. His father left. He was staying with the other one in a village. And the odds of them actually getting what they wanted were damn near zero, right? And the only difference between me and that kid was I was born where I was born to good parents in India. As a result, I automatically had a million times more opportunities than they did. I didn't do shit to fucking earn that. So I, in the darkness, I, I, I just kind of, as simple as it may sound, but as profound as it was for me was, look, I will never know the answers to that question. Like I was the kind of person when bad things happen, you know, sometimes people, when bad things happen, we go, why me? I was the kind of person when good things happen, I would go, why me? Like, why do I get that? And so I just realized that like, look, there's so much beyond my understanding, call it, I don't know what it is, God, the divine experience, like why things happen the way they do. Maybe it's just coincidence, maybe thought, I have no idea that I really stopped asking that question of why me, of why do I get this? What what have I done to deserve it? And really just let me just honor this life that I've been gifted and make the most of it and do something meaningful with it to be of service to humanity and to my human family, you know? And there's still there's still stuff I, I wrestle with that, like it still shows up. I still believe I have to earn my life, but I don't view it as something negative. I believe that I have to earn, like the the, the life that I've been gifted, it's now a responsibility to earn it. And the 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 crucible of suffering that I seek is in my mind one vehicle to earn it. But now it's in a very healthy way versus what it was, which was just running away from my demons. Now I've brought those demons to the surface and I work with them. I I, I align with them. They haven't gone away. They just become part of me. Uh-huh. So you know, I think that there's one other thing that really strikes me about this is that you I always feel like there's some sort of catalyst for people to make a change that they want to make. And it's always some sort of crisis, whether it be a crisis of identity, a crisis of health, you know, um, a crisis of you know spirituality, a crisis of just living life. So, you know, why do you think it is that people who don't have crisis get so stuck in their comfort zones without wanting to change? And, and this is something I have so many people, it's like, okay, can you bring about the change without the crisis? And so often it just seems so unlikely until you have sort of this wake up call that comes from something either traumatic, something crazy. Why do you think that is? You know, pain is the greatest driver of change. It is the most uh, profound, most valuable, most effective driver of change. But to your point, some people will get very comfortable in even in a kind of discomfort, right? People will stay in abusive relationships. They'll stay drinking. They'll stay in their own darkness and their own health because it's like that saying says, right? Like the devil, you know, is greater than the devil. You don't. So I'll stay in this version of hell because I don't know what's out there. The unknown is so much more scary until this hell becomes so hellish that I will do something differently. So, it, I mean, like, it's like, you know, like a kid putting his, evolutionary speaking, right? If I, if I look, if I avoid the, 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 the sunset, the beautiful sunset, if I don't look at it, no big deal. I'll, I'll, I'll live. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll still survive. I'll be there the next day. But if I don't pay attention to that tiger, the saber tooth tiger around the corner, I'm dead. So we're wired to pay more attention to danger. We're wired to pay more attention to pain. It was just like, again, like I was saying, like a kid putting his hand on a hot stove, right? That That's immediately going to drive it off. Pain is going to create an instinctual change. And so I think that's why we need to leverage it. That's why you want to look at pain as a valuable tool, not as an enemy. Like the whole essence of what I do with Fearvana and, and, and the ethos of my entire work is combating the very demonization of fear, stress, anxiety, pain, suffering, adversity, all these words that have a very negative relationship. But I believe you want to go into the place of pain and use it as a vehicle for change. So if something's not working, how can I amplify the pain of this thing 
And you can do that because so, everything we view in life is a construct on how we relate to our experience of reality. So we can create any kind of construct, right? Like we can create our own reality through our own lens. So if something isn't working, I would want to amplify that pain in order to use it. That's why I believe, that's why I said earlier about the crucible of suffering. Like suffering is the vehicle to attain the next awakening because it's in that crucible that you you go into places you've never been before. So you want to use pain as a tool, not run away from it. Like when you're in pain, good, go deeper into it. Like I'll give you an example. I was working with somebody who'd gone through some very horrific childhood trauma and caveat before I go here because it's gonna sound kind of fucked up. Like she was ready to go to those places. We'd been working together for a while. I'd like, you know, she was ready to go where I'm about to tell you where she went. And we were talking about this stuff. And I asked her, I was like, what if you deserved what you went through? And she literally goes, whoa. And now who, what kind of normal person would tell somebody you deserve this horrific childhood trauma you went through, right? And the thing is, I, like I asked her, you know, as we were continuing the conversation, I asked her, does some part of you feel like you deserve it? She goes, yes. Does some part of you feel guilty for it? And I said, she said, yes. I said, good, then go there. Everybody else will tell you, you didn't deserve it. You shouldn't feel guilty. Like people told me, you shouldn't feel guilty, you know, and I get it. You can't control what happens in war. Bullets fly where they fly. But the fact is that darkness exists. So instead of avoiding it, go into the pain cave, go into the darkness. She, she, like that night, this friend of mine texted me saying, literally, fuck you, Akshay. Because it, she went into some pretty dark spaces. I told her, like, like if, if you feel that, go there. What does it mean about you? What does it mean about God? What does it mean about humanity? What does it mean about life? Go into those spaces, sit with it, be with it, and then see what you find in that, in that cave, you know, in that hell. And the next day she shared with her husband for the first time, she hadn't shared, I think she'd been married like 20 years or something, never shared it with, with him, never shared with anybody. I don't even know the details of what happened. I can obviously kind of guess to some degree, but I don't know. And I told her it doesn't matter. You don't have to share it with me. But the fact is you have to go into hell to come out on the other side of it. So when you're in hell, go deeper into it and use that pain as a vehicle for change because it's through suffering you find transcendence. It's through suffering you find the next awakening. And that's why I continue to play on those playgrounds because it's the only place where you will, like you have to battle the dragon to find the treasure. And the greater the dragon, the greater the treasure on the other side of it. So use it. I think that that makes a perfect segue into talking about, you know, your crazy insane death-defying expeditions which every time i hear about them I'm like that sounds fucking horrible i'm not coming with you ever <laughs> um because i think that, that you know i wanted i told you i wanted to come back to something you know that we would come back to and there was this idea that you mentioned this is where you find your bliss and it's kind of interesting because i think that it's an odd paradox where the same place that you suffer so much is the same place that you find your bliss so just to give people some context, talk to us about the, you know, tell them about the most recent expedition, the one that you were on um, before I last saw you. And then we'll get into kind of the really important lessons, because like I said, I mean, that was what struck me most when we had that conversation just you know, on uh, FaceTime a, f- a few months back. Yeah, the 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 recent one that well, actually I've done a bunch this year as well. I went back into the darkness for 10 days. I did 10 days in silent uh, in darkness and isolation. I heard about that, too. No, yet another thing that sounded fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And days in complete darkness. Uh, that was the second time I went in the darkness. But the one last year, I think the one you're referring to, because I've been doing a lot of crazy shit. But the, yeah. the one last year was uh, I went to Antarctica, became one of only 26 human beings to ski up a very remote and isolated glacier in Antarctica. And Antarctica is one of the most savage, unforgiving and hostile environments on the planet. I lost a finger to frostbite. I got frostbite out there, lost the tip of one of my fingers. And now obviously, obviously I'm going back. But uh, I, I was supposed to ski from the Ross Ice Shelf up the Axel Hyber Glacier to the South Pole. We got up the glacier and um, and then that's when I got frostbite. So I didn't make it to the South Pole, but I did I did get to experience the 
the the beauty and brutality of Antarctica, speaking of the paradox of how they coexist as one, which nature is the beautiful playground for that. But I also did Denali. I attempted to climb Denali before, right before that. Uh, that was the highest mountain in North America. We got to the high camp, but got turned around by savage storms, which, I mean, we saw like a guy fell a thousand feet on, on the mountain, you know, and we saw him being evacuated out there as well. Somehow survived the fall. I don't know what happened to him long term, but point is to say, I was doing a few expeditions last year. Um, Antarctica was the last of which, and I was supposed to do many more this year, but it all got kind of nixed because of the frostbite. So the big one yeah. that I did, la- uh, the most recent, the big, most recent big one was the, the, the trip to Antarctica climbing that glacier. Let's talk about that. You know, I, I think there was some really interesting things that struck me uh, about that experience. And I, uh, you know, when you came back, I remember writing this down. But there's one other thing I want to talk about first. So Andy Duke recently wrote a new book called Quit the Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. And, I, you know, I think the frostbite is such a, a great example of that. By the time people are listening to this, they'll have heard our conversation with Annie, uh, where she talks about, you know, the guys who, who climb Everest and often, you know, people go far past when they should, they actually don't turn yeah. around when they should. You had the yeah. foresight to to actually say, okay, you know what, like the frostbite, I mean, I'm sure you probably wanted to continue, but you were smart enough to say, okay, you know what, like, you know, the whole point of this isn't to, you know, get there without coming back. You want to return safely. Obviously, you know, all of us want you to return safely. But so that's one thing. So let, let, talking about like the, the, the times, like knowing when to quit, I think is probably a very important skill in, in something Absolutely. this dangerous. It's a, and it's a hard thing, right? To your point about the Everest guys, like there's a lot of people who, like, if you, let's say you, you know, you should turn around at 2 p.m. and you don't and you make it to the summit back. Now you're a hero. But if you don't and then you die, like, then you, you know, like it's, it's a very, very hard call to make. For me with the frostbite, like the way I, I think about decisions like that is you got to look at, you got to bring it back to your core values, your driving philosophy, what, who you are. You know, for me, why I had to quit on the frostbite was I was a burden to the team. Like the, as soon as I got frostbite, the team was doing everything for me. I couldn't, like my hands were bandaged. I couldn't help set up the tent anymore. I couldn't do a lot of the shit in the stove. I would have, I was a burden to the team and that to me was unacceptable. You cannot be a burden to the team, right? Like I would have put, I would have compromised their expedition and that's, that's not even an option. But for example, I've already thought about this. When I go back to Antarctica solo, if it comes down to it and I have to like, like I don't want this to happen, but if I have to lose a few fingers to complete the expedition, I am absolutely willing to make that sacrifice. Like, again, I hope it doesn't come down to it. But but so you have to know where your line it, line of risk is. And each person makes that call. Like there's, you know, rock climbers who free solo up mountains. I used to free climb rock walls. It's like free soloing is climbing rock with no rope. Now, mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore because that line of risk is way too high for me. But people like Alex Honhold and, um, and the guy who made the Alpinist documentary, uh, I forget his name. But I mean, he was free soloing up ice and he died at the age of 25, you know, like, and I'm the one to judge that. Like the guy lived his life and he, it's it's not, he was unaware of that risk, right? So we each have to determine where that line of risk is for us and make that call. And it's not easy to do, but that's why when you come back, especially in those hard moments when you're, let's say like, I've climbed a mountain in Nepal where we were, you know, 100, 200 meters from the summit, very close to the summit. And we turned around. That was a hard call to make, but we saw like avalanches happening around us with soft snow, like prime avalanche conditions in, and it was heading to afternoon where you just don't want to be on the mountain. We were so close to the summit and maybe I could have gone to the summit and made it back and everything would have been okay. I don't know, right? Like that could have happened, but we made the call and I have absolutely no regrets. Same thing in Denali, you know, potentially we could have gone up in, in horrible storms and made it and everything was okay, but I have no regrets and none of the team, we were, I was with the team. I wasn't solo on that mountain. None of us have any yeah. regrets about that call. It was in our opinion, the right call. 
And, uh, and you have to, you, you got to kind of know where that line is. And, and because look, if you died, there's no more going out there, you know? So no. if, if you come back, the mountain will be there another day to fight for. So like for me, I'm willing to lose more fingers if it, again, I hope it doesn't count if it comes down to it to make the, to, to complete my next expedition. But if it was like on the cusp of death, I, w- I will be willing to retreat and come back to fight another day. But I don't like, it's also a fine line what the cusp of death even means, right? <laughs> Because yeah. the depth of exhaustion I will go to on these next trips I'm planning is, is going to be a deeper, darker hell than I've ever been before. And I'm ready for it. I know it's coming. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know whether I'll, like, I don't know. You won't really know. Sometimes it'll feel like you want to die. <laughs> I've had long ultra runs where I've done like a long, because uh, I've done a 24-hour run. I've done 80-mile runs, 72 mile, multiple ultra marathons. And I remember one ultra marathon run. I was in so much pain that I was like, if a, if I actually just, if I move in front of this car, because I was running on the side of the road, I move from this car right now and a car hits me, I don't have to run anymore. Like that's where my <laughs> mind went. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. let me just get hit by a car, but enough to not kill, not, not die, but just take me out. And obviously I didn't do that, but like, I was literally thinking that, you know, yeah, so yeah, sure. <laughs> you play in some dangerous games and you got to kind of determine where that line of risk is for you. Yeah. But you know, so what's, what's interesting to me is that, you know, this is a really perfect example of a cognitive bias, sunk cost bias that will often cause people to persist at something when they should quit. But the thing yeah. is that you are in an environment where that, you know, the, the reality of, of, you know, continuing is so amplified. So yeah. when, you know, the consequences of your decisions aren't so severe, how do you counteract that bias? I mean, how do you, like, how would you translate that to sort of real life? I give you, you know, just a stupid example. It's like, okay, Hey, we're, we're, you know, working on this product launch, you know, clearly it's not going to be a success, but you know, the thing is the consequences are nowhere as near as severe yeah. as the ones you have there. So how do you translate that to sort of day-to-day life? Yeah, it's a yeah, definitely different, different environment. I think it still comes back to looking like, and this is the, the, you need a very, very high level of self-awareness. Like, am I quitting because it's too hard? Am I quitting because this is just not the path? And that requires a very high degree of self-awareness to know that. Like, I always come back to, okay, what are my core values? What are my, like, I have crystal clarity on what are my values? What's my philosophy? What's my mission? Is this an alignment with that? Like, do I need to, if, if like, to me, it's like, okay, this is the dream and, and, and you will evolve as you know, okay, this is my path, right? So now I know, for example, this is what I'm striving for. This is who I want to be. I didn't always know this, but now I know with absolute certainty. And in this point of my life, I don't change the dream. I just change the plan to get there. So if this plan isn't working, like the plan has had to be adapted multiple times for what I'm working towards because, you know, I got frostbite, COVID happened, all these things happened, right? Like the plan changed and I couldn't do certain things beyond my control. So I had to adapt and move on. But the dream stays the same. So now if you're, let's say, early on in your sort of evolution where you don't know this is your path, then you have to experiment and come into this life with, come come into the, the journey with a little bit more of an experimentation mentality. Let's say I'm a 20 year old kid and I don't know this is exactly what I want to do. I'm going to step into the arena, right? Let me play a little bit. And you don't, and you got to, you, you got to, you have to establish the rule. Like I'm not just going to quit when it gets hard because everything's going to get hard. This shit's hard. Okay. I'm moving through the suffering. I'm pushing through. Uh, this is, is this really what I want? Is this really what my path is? You know, like I at one point wanted to go career in the Marines. That path changed. I have no regrets about it. That was my, it was a beautiful life experience. So it requires an extremely high level of self-awareness to know, is this really my path? And if this is my path and I know absolute certainty, then I don't change the dream. I just change the plan and I fight like fucking hell to get there, right? Like whatever the thing is, I'll just keep adapting, I'll tweaking. Iteration is constant. You look at, okay, this thing didn't work. Let me iterate. Like all growth happens in only two ways. Find what's working and do more of it. Find the problem, fix the problem. That's it. So if you know this is the dream, 
find the problem, fix the problem, and be very systematic about it. Find what's working and keep doing more of it and scale it. If you don't know this is the dream and you're still kind of figuring out, then you got to play and you got to keep stepping back. Like one of my mantras is stretch and reflect. So play on the edge, stretch, come back and reflect. Like I used to be a guy that would just jump from hard thing to hard thing to hard thing to hard thing without pausing to reflect. That was a huge mistake. Now I come back to reflect. Okay, what did I learn? What's the value? Is this who I really want to be? Okay, yeah, you know, I'm really digging this. Let me keep pushing the edge. Okay, yeah, you know, I'm digging this. Let me keep going. Let me keep going until I figure out this is who I want to be. Like now I know with absolute certainty this is my bliss, right? In the words of sort of Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. My bliss is adventuring even more so than entrepreneurship. I'm an entrepreneur and author second, like adventurer first. And that's come over time to discover that. But as you're in the discovery phase, you're gonna have to do a lot of stretching and reflecting. And you need to do both. Push the edge, come back. Yeah. So, you know, I think what prompted me to want to have a conversation with you again was sort of the the part of the conversation you and I were talking about where we were talking about sort of the delayed and long-term consequences of your habits um, and how, you know, your consequences are so immediate in a harsher environment. So talk to me about that because I think that's so relevant to people who are so unaware of sort of, you know, because like you said, I was thinking about it because I remember writing about that and I was like, yeah. Like, you know, you scroll through Facebook all day. You don't really notice the consequences of that yeah. immediately. It's kind of like, yeah. oh, I just wasted, you know, 20 fucking hours that I could have spent doing something far more worthwhile with my life. Yeah. And you don't see that consequence until a year, you know, a year down the road. You're like, damn, what did I, what could I have done instead with that time? But, you know, yeah. so talk to me about this idea of immediate and delayed consequences of your habits. Sure. Yeah. So like in the playgrounds I play in, like in Antarctica and mountains, if you mess up, like if, like, and I've, I've made my fair share of mistakes on the edge as well. The, you you feel the uh, the mistake of that instantly. Like psychologists call it an immediate return environment versus a delayed return environment. So even in Antarctica, like you're in a stressor, as soon as the stressor is gone, you're instantly relieved from it. Whereas in the quote unquote normal world, I could work my ass off for let's say a, a, a business launch that I'm doing and I still have no idea how it's gonna play out, right? The stressors are more constant. The, the results are more delayed. I don't know. I could work my ass off to get this good grade and still not know whether I'm gonna get into this college or not, right? So- what I learned, and this has been invaluable learning for me, was I realized how effective it is when when the when the consequence is immediate. Like if I don't set up this tent correctly, if I put one peg wrong, that tent could blow off. That's going to be a very severe problem that could kill me. So I was like, all right, this is an immediate consequence, is an immediate return. How can I bring this back into the real world? And it's it's as simple as like. Like, yes, okay, to your point, if I spend all day on Facebook, I'm not going to die, right? Like the way I can if I make a mistake on in, in Antarctica or on the mountains. But I have to frame it in my mind as an immediate consequence, as an immediate return. And that's simply reframing your mental reality because like, let's go meta on this for a second. Like when you engage with reality, you're not engaging with reality as it is, right? You're engaging with your belief systems, your lens, your perspective on reality, like, a good analogy is if I'm wearing red glasses, the entire world is going to look red. This is why two people can be in the exact same scenario. And we all know this, right? That one person will look at the world negatively. Everything sucks. All, you know, everything is shit. The other person can look at the same exact scenario, grow up in the same exact way and be like, life is grand. Here's why it's beautiful. So it's important to get recognized that you are engaging with your lens of reality, the constructs that shape how you view the world around you. So if you see that everything is a construct, everything from the littlest lens, like even if I look at this tree in front of me and I see that it's green, how do I know that's a green tree? I've been taught from a young age that color is green and that thing that I'm seeing is a tree, right? There's a 
there's an imperceptible moment, we're getting super spiritual here in like Buddhism, they talk about this, like an imperceptible moment between pure experience, the pure isness, and all the constructs that have been attached onto that pure isness. Now, by recognizing there is that space, I can choose what construct I assign to things. So coming back to your question about immediate consequences, I have to constantly, and by no means am I perfect at this, I'm far better now than I am before, but is like, I will, I will look at this thing that I'm doing and pause. Let's say, for example, I don't really, I don't do this anymore, but let's say, for example, I'm wasting time on YouTube or Facebook. I will have to step back and literally say to myself, if I do this one year from now, this is all the things I like, I look at the consequences. You know, I'll look, here's all the things I could have done. Imagine if I were to die one year from now and I spend all day next, next week doing 20, 20 hours of Facebook instead of, you know, training to ski across Antarctica or building this business. What will my life look like? Will I feel the pain of that regret? So one of the greatest tools to do this is actually literally, I mean, Buddhism, they do this a lot, is a death meditation. Visualize your death, step into your death and get super real with it. Like imagine, and I'm not just saying like live every day like it's your last. That's a very, like that cliche, because if you did, then often you wouldn't do the hard work required to, (laughs) to step into the battlefield. It's not just like that kind of mentality. It's like stepping into the reality that one day you will die. This is actually, I finished writing my book because dude, you're an author. You know that writing a book is hard. I procrastinated from time to time. Uh, (laughs) And what helped me finish it was like, dude, imagine you dying, never having shared your message with the world and like visualizing myself on my deathbed, just being like a piece of shit who never did all the things that I wanted to do, right? So I'm turning what is a delayed consequence, like spending time on Facebook, wasting my time into an immediate consequence simply by reframing that reality in my mind. And this process is constant. You don't do this once and it's magically solved. (laughs) You have to turn every pain and every reward as well into an immediate thing. So same thing with rewards. It's not just pain, right? Like I used to be the guy that if I ran 10 miles, I'd be pissed off I ran didn't run 12. If I ran 15, I'd be pissed off I didn't run 20. And that's a miserable way to live. So now I also make the reward immediate. Because same thing in Antarctica, like the rewards are immediate. You finish the hard day of skiing and you're in your tent and it feels fucking heavenly. You know, so now I also make the reward immediate. And it's as simple as like pausing just to acknowledge. Nice fucking work. You did that 20 miler today. Awesome. And that could be it. But that it, that is enough of a, a telling my brain that this was the right behavior, right? Like this is the right thing. And I'm almost like through conscious effort, activating the release of dopamine in my brain. Now, I don't have a brain scanner to, to, to say that it's done that, but data has shown this. We can do that, right? We can consciously release dopamine in our brain, we can consciously activate neurochemicals through the power of conscious energy in the mind. So I'm literally doing that to make the reward instant when need be. I'm also doing that with pain to make the pain instant because when it is instant, now you will do something about it. And even if it's not like in the most, like in the, um, in a sense of true sense, like in Antarctica where you will die, you can make it so just by using conscious energy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm constantly doing. That's how I like, a, a big, a, a core portion of staying disciplined is just if you can do that shit enough, it, you're guaranteed to be stay disciplined because if, if, if the pain is, as I said, we came back to the comment we were talking about earlier. If the pain is strong enough, you will do every fucking thing to avoid that pain because that's the nature of pain. It fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that, that, you know, what really strikes me, you mentioned the comments of like, you know, live each day as so your last and you wouldn't do the things you need to do. Cause I, I remember writing a, a Facebook post about this because usually the only thing I ever put on a Facebook is just because I'm testing ideas to see, you know, and I was like, yeah, okay. This is yet another one of those stupid platitudes that, you know, yeah. from that James Dean quote, I was like, no, you know what? I'd modify this. I was like, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if you're going to die by the end of the year. Because 
you know, that actually is realistic. You could be exactly. say, okay, if I'm going to die by the end of the year, then there is a lot I could do. Whereas it's like, exactly. oh, if I'm going to die by the end of the day, it's like, well, great. I, you know, I'm going to go just get completely blitzed and <laughs> exactly. you know, this is going to be the most hedonistic day of my life. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Why would I do all the hard work it takes? Exactly. If this was my, <laughs> so I completely agree that I think that, 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 yeah, that, no, but nobody would literally be like, you know what? It's the last day of my life. I'm going to sit down and write a book. You would exactly. Just be like, yeah. So. Yeah. Fuck right. Well, <laughs> dude, this has been really, really cool, uh, as I expected it would be. Um, Brother. So I have one final question for you, uh, which, you know, I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Sorry, say that again. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it is the um, the relentless pursuit of mastery of mind, body, spirit and your craft. You know, whatever your craft is, like striving for that next edge on that and using your craft, using your pursuit to be of service to something else. Like Viktor Frankl says, you know, self-actualization, if if we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the highest thing we seek. Self-actualization is a side effect of self-transcendence. And self-transcendence means we don't live in this in this internal vacuum within ourselves. We live as a part of something bigger than ourselves, the human family, society, God, whatever you want to call it, right? And so- when, but but it requires this du- duality of pursuing your path selfishly and with selflessness. Like the duality of both these seemingly contradictory forces can coexist. And when you do that, when you pursue these dualities as one and strive for the greatness, whatever your version of that in your craft is, and do it in service to something ba- the greater, you become legendary. You become unmistakable. You become your version of what Paolo Coelho co- calls fulfilling our own personal legend. Mm, amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough taking the time to join us and to share your story and your wisdom Thank and you your for having me, listeners. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, you can find me at Fearvana. So F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, Fearvana.com. I'm on Instagram. I share the journey and the lessons on uh, Instagram at Fearvana. And the book Fearvana is available on Amazon, Kindle, paperback. Um, all the profits go to charity as well. We support many causes like survivors of sex trafficking to former child soldiers. And on fearvana.com, I also have a bunch of trainings, like a, a training on the 25 ways to navigate pain, the, the pain cave, whether it be physical, emotional, physical, or spiritual, any kind of pain, the different weapons, because not every weapon is relevant in each time, and the different weapons to, to fight whatever pain you might be going through. So you can find me on all those spots. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.